0: This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Patrick Henry Podcast, where we look look at the failings of the world's elite and hold their feet to the fire analytically to make sense of the world that we live in. And today we look at profiles and gutlessness, why we must stop pretending that Europe is a great power. Crises have a way of clarifying what really is, and what really is cocktail party chatter, and the differences between the two. And the reality of this has been seen in the last week over the Ukraine crisis, which threatens, as I've said before, to spill out into a full-blown war. I predicted that Putin will indeed go to war over Ukraine, and that prediction, I stand by right now, it looks a good one to take to the bank, um, and again, one where I was in a distinct minority in calling for that uh, outcome, and it looks like I'm going to be right, but we'll see. Uh, If I am, we should judge by my being right. And if I'm wrong, we should judge by that. But I'm confident I'll be right. Even Joe Biden in his somewhat less than sharp press conference yesterday came to that conclusion. But over the last week, we've seen three efforts at negotiation with the Russians. First, the United States directly negotiated with the Russians, superpower to great power. Secondly, the Russians negotiated with NATO, the premier strategic alliance in the world. And thirdly, the Russians negotiated with the OSCE, a little-known organization, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which consists of the United States and Europe in a broad sense, in that broad geographic space, doing things together. So in each case, the Russians negotiated with the superpower of the United States, the greatest military alliance in the world, NATO, and then lastly, the OSCE. Who did they not negotiate with? The EU. The EU. Europe. And indeed, why should they? Because Europe, rather than being a profile in courage, is a profile in gutlessness. And we have to stop pretending that it's a great power, which Europeans think that by insisting, they can will into being. When we see under crisis circumstances, the reality of things, the things that really matter, the chess pieces on the board that can really do things. And Europe has constantly overrated itself. I'm now going to tell you a story and change the names to protect the guilty. But I went to a meeting not long ago run by a European think tank that I've worked with for a long time. And these are certainly well-meaning people. The problem is that they think that they're more important than they are and that Europe is more important than it is. And we were having a meeting about China. And I was talking on behalf of the American Republicans, the conservative realist view. And I was set off against an American who also works for a political risk firm, who is a leading Wilsonian. And he and I don't agree about much of anything. I, I think he's an able guy. And I enjoyed our discussion. But at the end of the discussion, one of the Europeans, and it was a primarily European audience, said, Well, how does Europe fit into all this, this talk about China and the United States as the two superpowers? Isn't Europe a third superpower? Isn't Europe a third force in the world? And although it was a Zoom call, he and I looked at each other, raised our eyebrows, and he said, absolutely not. Europe has no sort of foreign policy in common, doesn't have the strategic wherewithal to do things in common, and doesn't have common views about things. Rather, It is merely a large customs union, and it's a trading superpower, but it is not a strategic one. And Wilsonians, who tend to be far more European than us realists who care more about the reality of things, the facts on the ground, I merely looked, nodded, and said, I cede all my time to my Wilsonian colleague. Because in the end, Americans are cheerfully pragmatic. They'll work with people as they find them. And over China, Europe simply doesn't play. It is economically sclerotic diplomatically confused and divided and militarily a non-entity and that's the reality that we're dealing with and even my wilsonian friend and i came to the exact same conclusion europe doesn't play to the shock of the europeans who are at the meeting my shock is that they're shocked at all why in the world should these people be shocked after spending no money on defense for two generations that they're not taken seriously in a strategic manner International relations is not a debating society. It's rather based upon power, economic power, diplomatic power, cultural power, and military power. And if you don't have those things, nobody cares what you think. And we've humored them by being polite at cocktail parties when we should have told them the truth long ago. And in the current Ukrainian crisis, you see this becoming very, very clear indeed. And this isn't a great problem. And Europeans have been lied to or lied mostly to themselves. But we've got to stop pretending that they're a power when they're not. The reason I'm calling this profiles and gutlessness is that the, at base, there's a lotus-eating quality to the Europeans. And also at another recent meeting, same by the way, same firm that I was working with, we were discussing Germany and would it get its act together. The annoying phrase of Mrs. Miracle, we must do our homework As though if only Europe applies itself, everything will be fine. And yet empirical evidence, history, in other words, of my entire career shows that they won't. That sometimes the answer is not a Hegelian yes, but a historically based no. They will not apply themselves because they don't want to. And I was fortunate that a leading European analyst, again, another man I don't agree with very much, had the temerity to tell the truth. And while everyone else was shocked that I said, look, in another year, we'll have another meeting where Europeans will say yet again that they're going to spend money on defense. They're going to, out of this crisis and failure, now have a common foreign policy at last, and that this is where they're heading in the future and what they're going to do. Instead of that, I said, we'll have another meeting where you'll promise to do your homework. You'll be annoyed that I mentioned that you don't do your homework. We'll meet again. Absolutely nothing of consequence will have happened, and you will matter less and less and less Without even noticing it. And my friend, who is a leading European, pro European Europhile, whereas I am a leading skeptic, looked at me and said, I think John is right. And he was the only one to say this. Everyone else was shocked and appalled by me having the rudeness to mention the facts. And he said, I think you're right. We don't want to do the things necessary to be a great strategic power, which would enable us to, to, to do that. And certainly Europe could. It, it, Europe's GDP, if you add it all in together, the EU plus the states around it, Switzerland, Norway, et all around it, if you add in the scandal, some are in the EU, some are not. You add in Switzerland, you add in the UK, it's, it's, it's about the same GDP as the United States. If you just take the EU, its GDP is greater than that of the Chinese. Uh, And yet it doesn't begin to punch it that way because it is divided. At the state level, foreign policy is still made. The French run a Gaullist foreign policy. The Germans run a neutralist, mercantilist foreign policy. That is economics first, strategy way down the list. The British are now out. Could you imagine if America lost California? What we'd say about what a great power it was if a major component of, of, of the United States left well, a huge component of the EU is left, almost to no comment, which is extraordinary because Britain has the city of London, which is the financial capital of Europe. It has a military that can do everything from high-end warfighting to low-end peacekeeping. And it has a geostrategic history. It thinks strategically because of its time of empire. The only other European country that does all that is France. So losing one of the two strategic powers is a big deal, particularly with a black hole that is German isolationism sitting next door and all of this is there and and my wilsonian europhile friend just had the guts to agree with me and admit it we're not willing to give up our lifestyle to do the hard things, to have a military, to have a common foreign policy based on qualified majority voting in the EU. We will instead have state-centric run foreign policies. We won't do very much overall militarily and we'll continue to be an economic power. In other words, not very much is going to change because people don't want it to. They're more than willing to accept decline If it happens in somebody else's lifetime, because of course, this is going to be slow. The EU isn't going to cease to exist. And I'm not saying that it just will matter less and less and less. It will just be found out more and more and more as the Russian crisis is. Putin is basically saying, take me to your leader. I have these grievances. Take me to your leader. So let's go talk to the United States, the premier ordering power in the world and the world's foremost superpower. Let's talk to NATO, the world's foremost military alliance dominated by the United States. And let's talk to the OSCE, which is the United States, plus the European allies, particularly in places like Scandinavia, the British willing to do something about Russian adventurism. Take me to your leader. I can only work with people and reach a deal with people who have actual power. And that leaves the EU out sulking at cocktail parties as they're not included. In fact, President Macron, as a Gaullist, ever ever sensitive to slights to the EU, has pointed this out and said, we must play, we must set up the Normandy Front over Ukraine, which is Russia, Ukraine, Germany and France to sort this problem out. And nobody took him up on this. There was polite listening and this was forgotten because Germany and France alone can't do a darn thing about Ukraine because the Germans don't have an army. So why in the world involve them? This, this is a strategic matter. And Putin doesn't need to take their, their, their thinking into account. So he doesn't. So let's stop pretending that Europe is a great power anymore. Let's look at it for what it is. It's not at the table. It's on the menu. It's a series of states, some of which matter. Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Poland, they all matter. But it is not a unified great power with a common foreign policy, a common army, and a, and, and a common wherewithal to do anything. It's not that. It's economically sclerotic, politically divided, and militarily impotent. That's what it is. Let's see things as they are. The first rule that Aristotle taught us, the founder of realism, is see things as they are. What is, is, he said. You can't get away from that. You can't, in a postmodern way, wish away facts. You can't have magical thinking, as my friends did. You have to be clear eyed. And as my German counterpart said at the meeting, No, we're not prepared to do those things. We like our lifestyle. We like being lotus eaters. We like being the Venetian Republic. And we'll sit here and slowly atrophy, mattering less and less year by year, imperceptibly over a very long period of time. And we will cease to be a great power. We're not going to get our act together. Every crisis and every failure is not a sign that we're getting our act together. It's a sign that we're happy being in decline because the lifestyle in Europe, and I certainly can attest to this, is wonderful. But why do I call this Profiles and Gutlessness? Well, let's just take, at the moment, the two major issues out there, the two major revisionist powers Europe has to confront. Superpower in waiting China and Russia, revisionist great power next door. Now again, if you add in all the economic wherewithal of the EU, it is superior to both. Certainly to Russia, which has a GDP the size of Italy or the state of Texas, depending on how you look at it, and even China. With far fewer people so a much higher per capita income in europe so europe could be a great power it has chosen not to be because that would require sacrifice and in a decadent europe no one no one is willing to make sacrifices the lifestyle is the religion the six-week holiday is everything and they're not about to change that let's look at their reaction to china and to russia first to china Little known story, Lithuania, a small but doughty European state, has decided to do more with Taiwan. Now, of course, this is sacrilege to the Chinese who begin bullying the Lithuanians, begin talking about cutting them out of things, begin messing with the supply chain and defying the Europeans to do anything about it. Germany, the export-driven superpower writ large, because on trade matters, Germany certainly does play as a great power. Uh, in, in fact, one of the greatest powers, the most export driven major economy in the world, unfortunately, is pointed out that for the fifth year running, China is the largest source of trade with Germany. And so even though Lithuania is part of the EU and the Germans are constantly saying, well, no, we're an an intellectual black hole when it comes to foreign policy, but we'll cede all that to Europe. Immediately, this goes out the window the minute the Chinese say, look, if you come to the rescue of the Lithuanians as we bully them mercilessly, uh, we're going to reconsider our trade options. So the Germans grow eloquently silent. This is why they are on the big issues, isolationist, and neutralist this is an example that simply can't be wished away by Europe's cheerleaders and without Germany and France and Germany are at the center of Europe even more so than they used to be with the abdication of the British with Germany saying in an embarrassed silence well we can't really do that much for you if they don't come to the rescue of Lithuania and there are no signs that they will Look again for Europe to be picked apart. There's cherry picking that can go on because if Germany is going to be neutralist and mercantilist in a black hole, there simply can't be a common European foreign policy. It's that central to things. The problem ultimately here is Germany. And then on Russia, this is obvious. Things are so bad that when the British wanted to resupply the Ukrainians with defensive anti-tank weapons, they chose not to ask to fly over German airspace because they thought they wouldn't like the horrifying answer, which would be that Germany would say, no, you can't fly over our airspace because we do an awful lot of energy deals with Russia. And in fact, without Russian gas, we're nowhere. So badly has German energy policy been run by the overrated Mrs. Merkel since she shut down German nuclear power without thinking about the consequences in the wake of the Fukushima disaster that they are now utterly dependent on German. Germany is on Russian natural gas. And if Nord Stream 2 goes ahead, which Joe Biden nonsensically in his dotage didn't fight about, uh, if this goes ahead, this will double Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas. And so already dependent on Russian natural gas, Germany has an embarrassed silence and the British have to fly around Germany to supply Ukraine with what are utterly defensive weapons. That's how useless the Germans are and how gutless they are and how entirely selfish they are. They don't believe in Europe. They are willing for the shilling. They believe only and their own economic wherewithal. They are willing for the shilling. There is no greater good. It's their pocketbooks. And so on both China and Russia, they're utterly worthless. And so there can be no common policy because they're in the pockets of the Russians over energy. And already because of their failed energy policy, they are utterly dependent on the Russians who can shut them down anytime they like. And they know that, and that keeps them queuing to this neutralist, Hang behind line. Joe Biden, uh, there's a reason they're not letting him do many press conferences because he bumbles through them and occasionally tells the truth. And at the press conference just concluded yesterday, Biden said very clearly, look, if if Russia just there's an incursion in Ukraine rather than a full scale invasion, NATO doesn't have a common position on that, meaning Germany will not be that forceful over that. That's the subtext that Biden let slip, that NATO is divided. And NATO is divided because Europe is divided. And Europe is divided because Germany doesn't want to mess with its gas supplier, which is extraordinary. NATO is set up to protect the Germans and the Europeans from the Russians, while at the same time Germany is doing gas deal after gas deal with the Russians, who America is there to protect while the Europeans don't spend enough on their defense. This is not an intellectual situation that can continue forever. It is a glaring contradiction. We can't care more about European security than the Europeans do. And that's what's happening at the moment. We simply can't care more about Europe than the Europeans do. And this is a black hole. So let's not pretend the Europeans have a common foreign policy or doing anything other than gumming up the works to even resupply Ukraine with defensive weapons. And Biden let the cat out of the bag, saying we don't even have a common position between the United States and Europe on what to do if Russia invades Ukraine but doesn't go all the way to Kiev that that's the only thing that's going to make the Germans move. Everything short of that will amount to an embarrassed silence, some sanctions, moving NATO troops east, snubbing Russians at cocktail parties. In other words, nothing. And so Biden reaches the correct conclusion, which I don't know that he should have said out loud, but I reached talking to you as a political risk analyst, that Putin will invade Ukraine, certainly at least the eastern portion of it, because he can because Europe is not a great strategic power, because there's nothing stopping him from doing this. And after 70 years from World War II, it is up to the Europeans to take care of their near abroad, the neighborhood, the Balkans, North Africa, and relations with the states around Russia. The United States has bigger fish to fry in the Indo-Pacific, where we're dealing with a peer superpower competitor in China, but after 70 years of infantilization, the Europeans think that the worst of both worlds. They think that they're a great power, but they're not, and they're not prepared to do anything. And as a result, Putin, sensing weakness, seeing a way to cement his place in Russian history as a reformist, vigorous czar on the Peter the Great model, to have a sphere of influence running from the Balkans through the Belarus and Ukraine to the Caucasus and into the Middle East, that he can set this sphere of influence in place and that no one will stop him is right, because ultimately who needs to stop him here are the Europeans, and they will do nothing, because they simply are not a great power. It's time we, as as Aristotle said, we say what is, is. This is a gutless policy. If you don't master history, it masters you. And the reason I entitled this Profiles in Gutlessness, finally, is that one of my favorite books as a child was John F. Kennedy and Ted Sorensen's book, Profiles in Courage, where Kennedy took the notion of profiles encouraged and looked at various senators who had risked things, sacrificed things to do the right strategic thing. And Kennedy was given credit for it at the time, won the the Pulitzer Prize for writing. It's a great book. Probably Sorensen did more than just editing and did a good deal of the writing and Kennedy did the editing. But between the two of them, they concocted what is really a heck of a book. And I love the idea of looking at courage as a factor in life. The Europeans have chosen generation after generation to be willing for the shilling, to show no courage of any kind. And of course, in a karmic sense, there's going to be payback for this. If you don't master history, it masters you. And Europe, by letting Russia run over it, is making it plain now for everyone to see that the question I was asked with my Wilsonian friend at the meeting is Europe a superpower should be met by derisive laughter not only is Europe not a superpower in strategic terms it's not a great power it's a customs union it's a trading superpower and that's it and it is no longer at the table so Putin has decided Europe will be on the menu. It is in terminal decline, is the least of the great powers, and is falling off the table. And Ukraine and China have made this patently clear that Europe will simply do nothing, worship its lifestyle for the next 30 or 40 years, and then wonder where it all went wrong. But we need to see this first pivot to the Indo-Pacific, work more with the Anglosphere, which actually will do things, work more with great power Japan, work more with great power India, and leave Europe to continue to drift into irrelevance, which it so richly deserves. Thank you very much for listening to the Patrick Henry Podcast. For those of you who like this, please do subscribe. We've had an overwhelming response since we started the podcast six months ago. I'm gratified to say that, and if you find this interesting, creative, different, and on the money, please do subscribe. And for those of you who have, please do give because Substack works on the honor system. We're only asking $70 a year or $7 a month. For $70 a year, which is half a Starbucks a month, we will continue to tell you the truth in a way almost no one else does using that strangest of things, logic and facts to back things up. You heard it here first. Have a great day.